This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I'm just so excited this morning, a little bit nervous about the new message series that we're beginning today. I'm excited because I've never done an in-depth study of the book that we're going to be studying, and, and I'm looking forward to learning some new things about God's Word, along with you. But I'm on the nervous side because even though the historical aspect of this book is fairly clear, yet the practical, everyday living aspect is not so clear. And so there's just a little bit of apprehension within me. I don't believe that God wants us to just look at the Bible as a history book, even though it is that very accurate, but he wants us to be able to relate it to everyday life. Uh, this series will probably be a very short series. This book only has two chapters. And so we're. Uh, my goal is to try to squeeze maybe three weeks out of this. And some in the early service, they were saying, yeah, right, you've never done a series that short. Uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, the name of the book that we're going to dig into is the Old Testament book of... How do you say that? How many of you say it's Haggai? Raise your hand. How many of you say it's Haggai? Raise your hand. How many of you don't have a clue? <laughs> the don't have a clue that you have it there. Well, um, the preferred pronunciation of this book is Haggai. In my circles, in Bible college, the common pronunciation was Haggai. And so both are correct. You can say it however you want, or you can add a third variation if you want, and that's okay. Now, now some of you are freaking out, and, and you're saying, where is Haggai in the Bible? Well, it's after Zephaniah and before Zechariah. That help any? Or just go to the last book of the Old Testament and go left, what, three books or so, and, and you ought to find it. Now, um, the prophet Haggai, Haggai was considered a minor prophet. And as someone said, poor Haggai never made it to the majors. He just stayed in the minors. And, and that's a bad joke. But the reason the minor prophets are called minor is not because the content was minor, but, but simply the books are shorter and the content is more narrowly focused than the major prophets. But they're just as important as the major prophets. Now, Pastor Jim started a series on this. Uh, and I know he covered all of that, and, and he's going to continue that series tonight. So this is just a little promotion. Uh, he, he's giving some really, really good stuff. And uh, so, Jim, what book are you going to talk about tonight? Amos. So come tonight, and you will hear more on the Minor Prophets. Now, to get us pointed in the right direction here, let, let me say this. There are times when many of us wake up at certain stages of our lives... And we have this unsettled feeling, and we think that by now, where we are in our life, the stage that we're in, you know, things should be a lot better than they are. You know, for example, it, it could be that you're in high school or, or, or maybe even college age, and, and you would think that by now you would know what you would want to do with your life, but you don't have a clue. And you feel like that something is wrong. You're just depressed because you don't have direction for your life. Or it might be that you're at an age where you thought by now you would have a real job with real benefits. 
but instead all you could do was pick up a part-time minimum wage job that is far from what you were trained to do and far from what you would like to do. It might be that you're at an age where you thought you would be married, but the truth is you're not married. And as you look around, there is no one on the horizon. Or, or maybe you're married and, and you thought that marriage would give you this awesome life, but instead your marriage has brought you pain and heartache. In fact, you're more miserable now than, than before you got married. And then perhaps some of you thought that when kids came along, they would fill that emptiness in your life. And, and they did to a certain extent. But now that you have kids, you also find yourself dealing with another set of circumstances. And, you know, you are so busy following them to ball games and activities. And not to mention that you're flat out broke trying to provide for them. By the way, I read this stat. They, they say that the average kid, you, know what, you want to know what the average kid costs? About a quarter of a million dollars. From the time they're, they're born and, and, and you get them out the door and, you know, help with college some and then you got to bail them out later on and, and, and all of that stuff, they say it's almost $250,000. Do I hear an amen here? Jim just announced to us last week that they're having twins besides the two. That's a million bucks right there, Jim and Cindy. Did you realize that? And then there are those who thought, well, I'm going to try religion or I'm going to try church. But they find that church and religion didn't really change things in their life. And they're still disillusioned and confused. And you say, where are you going with this? Well, I give you those scenarios to try to help you understand that this was the mood during the time when the book of Haggai was written. That the people of Israel were thinking that as God's people, surely everything about their lives would be good. And, and their kids and their grandkids, that the future would be secure for them. But reality was so far from that. Life hadn't turned out as they expected. Now let me try to give you the background leading up to the events that, that caused that feeling of hopelessness among the Israelites. Just a history lesson here. During the fourth year of, of King Solomon's reign, he began construction of the temple of God. And, and it was to be a temple that would be more glorious and more magnificent than you could ever imagine. And after it was completed, it was truly marvelous. People from all across the world came to, to see this amazing work of construction. But then, King Solomon died. And what happened is what also happens to so many of, to, to many of us so many times. The, the, the people not only began to be casual in their relationship with God, but, but they got distracted. And they strayed away from God and, and they began worshiping idols. So, so because of that, as, as God so often does, he allowed a series of events to take place in order to bring the people's hearts back to himself. And just to make it easy to follow for you, I'll put... In your notes, three bullet points that review some of those events. The, the first histor historical event is, is one that took place in 587 B.C. And in that year, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and his army came in and completely crushed the southern kingdom of Israel that was called Judah. And not only did they destroy the city, but, but to add insult to injury, they demolished that amazing temple that had been built by King Solomon. And what happened there is that stripped away... The spiritual identity of the Jewish people. 
Well, as a result of this, the, the next bullet point is that the Jews were taken away into captivity for 50 years. And, and technically it was 70 years because they had already been basically in captive, captivity for 20 years before the temple was destroyed. But anyway, after the temple was destroyed, they were taken into captivity for 50 years. Now, we often read about this captivity, and, and I think many times we, we can't imagine the implications, and we think, well, yeah, poor people. Yeah, that had to be really hard for them. But let me try to describe this to you in modern terms so you can truly understand the implications. Let's say that an enemy nation develops into a massive nuclear power and they come to our president and they say, Mr. President, we're going to take out Washington, D.C. We're going to take out New York City and several other major U.S. cities. Plus, we're going to take out the major cities of your ally countries unless your country surrenders to us. Well, suppose the president and his cabinet and, and Congress, they meet together and, and they consider their options and they say, well, you know what? We've really got the nukes to retaliate. We, we can retaliate. But they begin to realize that this would probably start a global nuclear war that would destroy the entire world. And so they feel that the best option is for them to surrender to this enemy in hopes that the enemy nation would have mercy on them. So the president goes to them and raises the white flag of surrender. Well, what happens is that immediately this, this enemy nation takes over our country and we are now no longer the United States of America. We are now just an extension of that enemy nation. And a majority of us are taken to a faraway country and we become slaves. We're no longer free to travel wherever we want to go. We're no longer free to elect officials to govern us. We, we, are no, longer, we no longer have a voice we no longer are free to worship as we want. We go into a period of bondage that lasts 50 years. Now that scenario right there pretty much gives us an understanding of what Judah went through when they became captives. They lost their land. They lost their freedom. They lost their ability to worship God, Jehovah openly. Well, quickly bullet point number three. Try to then imagine the relief and the good news when in 538 B.C., five decades later, about 50,000 people were allowed to travel back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And, and you can only imagine their relief and excitement. Well, as the Jewish people went back, the first thing on their agenda was to rebuild the temple. And they knew that their disobedience to God had, had taken them into captivity. And so they felt the need to reestablish their spiritual identity with God, Jehovah. And so they began to work. They, they began the foundation for the temple. They even rebuilt the altar so they, can resume, so they could resume sacrifices. But then something happened there began to be some opposition to rebuilding the temple. Some people came in and began to oppose and harass them and try to stop this building program. So how do you think the Israelites responded? Well, they responded like most of us would have responded. They stopped working on the temple. And they said, well, I, I, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. You know, if this project would have been of the Lord, then everything would have just fallen into place. It would have been easy, but since we've encountered 
this difficulty and opposition, I guess this must not be of the Lord, must not be the right time. How many of us have started a project for the Lord and we got some opposition and we said, well, you know, if this would have been a God, it would have just fallen into place. It would have been so easy. So I guess it must not be of the Lord. You know, tragically, many of us determine whether, whether something is or is not of God by the ease factor. We say, well, it just all fell into place, so it had to be of God. Or, wow, we encountered some opposition and some hard times. We said, well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. Don't ever determine God's will by how easy or how hard it is. Could I just bring a couple of examples to the table here that I think will speak to some of us. When you go to buy a car or a house or whatever, just because it comes together does not always mean it's God's will. Thank you for those amens. You know, if it puts you in tremendous, in a tremendously financial bind, tremendous financial bind, it's probably not of the Lord, even if it does come together easily. But by the same token, when, when you go to do something for the Lord and, and things get tough and, and you encounter hardship and, and some opposition, that doesn't always mean that this is not of God. But anyway, the Jewish people received opposition and, and they stopped working for the temple for how long? 14 years. 14 long years they didn't do any work on the temple. And what is so interesting and ironic is that while they were in captivity, that's all they could think about. You know, we need our spiritual identity. We need a temple. We need to re-identify with God, Jehovah. And, and as soon as they let us go back home, we're going to build a temple for our God. That, that's all they thought about. But when the task got difficult, they said, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be. And instead of working on God's house, let me just give you a preview and we'll come back and read this in the Word. Do you know what they did? They began working on their own houses, which, you know, they needed a place to live from our context. That seems reasonable. But, but the Bible says, and again, we'll read this in a moment, says they began building elaborate homes for themselves. And they forgot building the temple, which was central to their society. Well, that's kind of a long introduction there, but that was the setting when God raised up the prophet Haggai to call the people back to rebuild the temple for God. Let's dive into our scripture, and we're going to begin with Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. And I'd start with verse 1, but I can't pronounce all the names, so we're going to skip verse 1. You can read that at home. And we're going to begin with verse 2, and this is the way it reads. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people are saying. Now, now catch this. Kind of record this in your mind. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, the temple. Now, this verse cracks me up. Did you notice that God refers to them as the people? 
And the reason I find this humorous is because almost everywhere in the Old Testament, God says, my people, my people, if my people will humble themselves, my people. But in this case, God does what my wife does to me when our grandkids are bad. And she will say, Joe, your grandkids did this. Or when our daughters were young, Joe, your daughters did this. And so God is like the people. They're not my people right now. The people are saying that this is not the right time to rebuild the temple. Now, why did the people think that this wasn't the right time? Well, again, they had the mistaken concept that opposition always meant that it wasn't God's will. That they felt that if something didn't come easy, then surely God couldn't be in it. But, but the truth is that when, when we do something that really matters to God, the more likely we are to face opposition. And yes, God can and he does use opposition to slow us down at times. But many times our opposition doesn't come from God. It comes from Satan. And so opposition could be a sign that we're doing what God wants us to do. And that's why we have to be so sensitive. And we need to test the spirits. We should not let opposition or ease determine whether it's right or wrong. And that's why those of you that are in leadership, if you're a board member, if you're a, a small group leader, Sunday school, or, or, or kids work, or music, whatever, you should expect to have some opposition. In fact, you should really worry if you don't have opposition. Because rarely will God do anything great through us without some opposition. You know, I've heard pastors kind of brag and say, well, my church had the pastoral vote and I got a unanimous vote. And even though I'm, I'm sure that would make the pastor feel good, and I, I don't know, I've never had that. But a unanimous vote is probably not necessarily a compliment. Because again, if we're doing anything, for, anything great for God, there will almost always be some type of opposition. In fact, I was talking with Jim about this earlier this week. Uh, you know, it, I, I've heard it said that in a youth department, if no one is criticizing the youth department, if no one is criticizing the youth pastor, then they're probably not doing anything for Jesus. They're not aggressive enough. And, and that same thing can be said about any other department in the church. If, if there's no opposition, probably we've got them cruise. We're just kind of floating along and not attempting anything great for Jesus. That the moment you begin to do something... Uh, significant for Jesus and you become obedient to what God has called you to do, mark it down, there will be spiritual opposition. Don't think that when you say yes to Jesus that everything will always automatically and easily fall into place. And, and don't think that everyone will always love you. So here's a little rule of thumb to keep us on track. You might want to write this down, or maybe it's in there, I don't remember. When it comes to determining a course of action... Always choose the hard right over the easy wrong. Over and over, pray that as you follow God, as, as opposition comes, that God will give you the power to choose the hard right over the easy wrong. And this principle should be carried over into all areas of our lives. And I want you to listen because I think this is going to speak to some of us. When someone hurts your feelings, let be honest, anybody ever had their feelings hurt? Anybody this past week? <laughs> when someone hurts your feelings, the easiest 
response, the most natural response is to avoid them and be angry at them. Choose the hard right over the easy wrong and forgive them as Christ has forgiven you. Or when the easy thing is to go and buy the latest and the greatest and spend more than what you have or more than what you should, more than what is good stewardship, choose the hard right and live beneath your means and in such a way that you can be generous with other people. Or when the easy thing is to just let your marriage fall apart, choose the hard right and say, we will go get some counseling. We will fight for this marriage. Or when the easy way out is not to say anything to your friend or relative that's destroying his or her life, choose the hard right and get out of your comfort zone and go to them and say, I love you too much to let you go down this road. And I wonder if this morning, if there aren't some people here that need to quit taking the easy wrong and we need to choose the hard right. Let's continue reading. Uh, let me see, verse 3. So the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses? Very significant. Living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And listen to this phrase. Consider how things are going for you. And I kind of get amused at that statement. Consider how things are going for you. It's almost God is saying tongue in cheek. Here you are spending a lot of money to build your luxurious houses while the temple lies destroyed. And it's almost as if God says, let me know how that works out for you. You know, consider how things are going for you. I mean, now you've got the granite countertops, you've got the crown bowl, you've got the biggest and the best TV around, you've got the latest of everything, you've got gadget after gadget, your houses are beautiful, amazing, but God says, consider how things are going for you. In other words, let me know how that kind of focus works out for you. And, And what had happened is that the people had put their own comfort ahead of God's calling. God was trying to let them know that when you focus more on on you than you do on God, you know, when we do that, we're headed for trouble. So God said, let me know how that works out for you. And by the way, just for clarification, in case some of you leave here mad at me, God is not against us having nice things. He just doesn't want nice things to have us. You see the difference there? It's okay to have wealth, but it's not okay when wealth has us. And so maybe we need to pause a moment and ask ourselves some really tough and convicting questions. And, you know, just as I open my heart to you, Some of these questions about put me on my knees before God and I'll admit I had to say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. I ask myself these questions that I ask you are, are we putting our own comfort ahead of his calling? In other words, are we spending a bunch of money just so we can pamper ourselves and be comfortable? Are are we spending more money on ourselves than we are on God's kingdom? How about this question? Are we trying to make a name more than we're trying to make a difference? 
How about this? Are we putting our house before his house? Are, are, are we consumed with ourselves instead of being consumed with him? Maybe we ought to just all come to the altar and confess. Very probing, convicting questions. Now, the next few verses in our scripture are very revealing. In fact, probably I could use the word haunting. That they're haunting in the fact that in the approximately 2,500 years since the book of Haggai was lived until today, things have changed so little. In fact, as we read these verses, I think some of you will say, wow, God's word, even the Old Testament book of Haggai is relevant today. God says in verse 6, you've planted much but harvested little. You have food to eat but not enough to fill you up. You have wine to drink but not enough to satisfy your thirst. You have clothing to wear but not enough to keep you warm. And then listen to this statement. See if you can relate. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. And then skip on down to verse 9. You hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house, my house lies in ruins, says the Lord Almighty. While you're all busy building your own fine houses. That is why the heavens have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its crops. I've called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olives and all your crops, a drought to starve both you and your cattle and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. So let me give you the modern translation, okay? Can I just say it in plain terms? Can I? Here it is. You're working your tail off but you still can't get ahead. You're making more money than you've ever made before, but it's still not enough. And then you try to entertain, entertain yourself. You, you go to ball games, you go to movies, you go out to eat, you get into a fitness craze, yet there seems to be something missing from your life. Who said God's word was old-fashioned? God's word is as up-to-date as the morning news. Well, let's move on to verses 7 and 8. And God graciously and lovingly. Did you know that our God is a loving God? Three of you know that. And seriously, some of you, you're still in that mold of God is this taskmaster. He's looking over my shoulder, hoping that I will blow it so he can just zap me. Sometimes because of our earthly fathers, and thank God my father was not that way. I have a concept of, of fatherhood as someone who is so loving, and that's the concept I have of my God. But sometimes because of what happened in our childhood, we, we look at God the Father as, as only the judge, and yes, he is a judge, but... Thank God he is loving. But anyway, God graciously and lovingly gives the Israelites some simple instructions to help them get jump-started on rebuilding the temple again. And we read this in verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. 
And catch this phrase again. Consider things, how things are going for you. In other words, how is focusing on yourselves instead of God working out for you? Verse 8, now go up into the hills, bring down the timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So God basically breaks his instructions down into three simple steps. Number one, he says, go up into the hills. Some translations say, in the mountains. Number two, bring down the timber. Number three, rebuild my house. Let me say it again, just in case you missed it. Go up into the mountains, bring down the timber, rebuild my house. And some of you still have a blank look on your faces. This is so complex theologically. Let me repeat it one more time. Go up into the mountains, bring down the timber, rebuild my house. God gives his people steps one, two, three. But here's the problem with many of us. We say, well, God, okay, you gave steps one, two, and three, but, but what about steps four, five, and six? You know, God, you know my personality. I'm, I'm OCD. I'm, I'm really organized, and, and I want to know the entire plan up front. I, I need to know all the details, like, who's going to pay for this, God? Um, who's going to do the chainsawing, God? And God, can I count this off of my tithe? And how about a tax write-off? And, and God, will I get a little plaque with my name on it in the foyer of the new temple? Because I worked on this. You know, God just kept it simple. He said, don't worry about a bunch of ifs. He said, steps one, two, three, go up the mountain, bring the timber down, rebuild my house. You know, the Bible says that uh, the word is a lamp into my feet. Have you ever thought about this? It just hit me. A lamp isn't very bright. You know, there, there's a lamp back there. Um, light guys, could you just turn off all the lights, please? Just, just. Okay, and I know we've got the lights on the screen here, but there we go. You know what? This, this little lamp right here is probably bright enough. I could take one, two, three steps, and then it's dark. Thank you. You can bring up the lights again. God says that his word is like a lamp into our path. And so we won't be able to see steps four, five, and six until we've taken steps one, two, and three. What does that mean to us? It just means that when we do what God shows us, steps one, two, and three, he will then give us more direction, steps four, five, and six. Obedience brings more direction. You know, sometimes we're saying, oh, God, just leave me. And God says, I've given you steps one, two, and three. I'm not going to give you any more until you Take steps one, two, and three. You say, well, my marriage isn't very good and I'm not sure what to do about it. Steps one, two, and three. 
Apologize for what you've done. Humble yourself. Put your spouse first. After that, you can worry about steps four, five, and six. Is that right, Alex? You, you, you say, well, someone hurt me. And ever since then, our relationship has been strained. Okay, steps one, two, and three. Take the initiative. Don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them and talk and pray together, work things out. You say, well, what if they don't respond well? Hey, you're not responsible for the outcome. You're responsible for obedience. You say, well, pastor, I've got a secret sin that's been plaguing me for a long time. Okay, steps one, two, three. Confess that sin to God. Find someone that you trust and ask them for help and accountability and experience freedom. Some of you are lonely and you need Christian community. You need to get involved in some Acts chapter 2 life groups. Steps 1, 2, and 3. Find a group that fits you. There are so many, so many opportunities. Sunday morning, Wednesday evening, Thursday evening. Find a group. Attend that group faithfully. And be open to doing life with others in the family of God. You say, oh, Pastor, I, I just want to be closer to God. Okay, steps 1, 2, and 3. Make sure there's no unconfessed sin in your life. Because if you have unconfessed sin in, in, in your life, that's going to stop everything right there. And then make sure you're spending time with God. Make sure you're walking in obedience. And then God will give you steps four, five, and six. I have a feeling that uh, some of us need to quit worrying so much about so many details. And we need to walk by the Spirit instead of by sight. And maybe some of us need to quit talking and we need to start doing And maybe we need to quit thinking and start acting. Maybe we need to go up the mountain, get some timber, and start doing what God has asked us to do. Let me wrap it up with this thought here. The people of Israel fell into disobedience, and, and God had to call the prophet Haggai to bring them back to him. If there's some disobedience in your life today, whether it's a sin, a habit, an addiction, unforgiveness, legalism, whatever it is, if there's some disobedience in your life today, don't, don't make God call a Haggai into your life to get you back on track. You know, that's what this whole series is about. That's what this whole book is about. Getting us back on track again. That the Israelites had stopped building the temple. And so God called Haggai to get them back on track. So if you're in disobedience right now, go up the mountains, bring down the timber, and rebuild what is broken in your life. Choose the hard right over the easy wrong.
And maybe some of you would like to do that today. Maybe some of you, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the first place to begin. Come to Jesus. And if you're weary, if you're carrying a load of sin, Jesus says, come unto me. What does he say? I'll give you rest. Maybe some of you, you've known what it was to walk close with God, but, but kind of like the Israelites, you strayed away and, 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 and you've gotten off track. The call from God, the call from Haggai is to come back, come back to God. And so I don't know how God is speaking to you right now. But I would just ask that you would obey Jesus Christ with all of your heart today. I'm going to ask you to stand, please. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Eyes closed, nobody looking around. Is there somebody that would say, Pastor, God really spoke to me today. Don't come back and embarrass me, but just pray for me. God has really spoken to me. Would you just lift a hand? Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand and yours and yours and yours. Hands across. Thank you. You can put your hands down. You know, I, I believe that God is calling some people today to get back on track. And, and, and if you want to come and pray, I'd love to pray with you this morning. That's, there's nothing more important than that. You know, if you raised your hand and you'd like to pray, and you don't have to confess your sins to me, you don't have to say anything publicly, but your conversation needs to be with Jesus Christ. Would you want to just come and kneel here? God has spoken to you. Why would you wait? Why would you wait for another opportunity? He is calling you. He's saying, come, come, come. Those of you that know the Lord, would you just be praying? Because I believe there's some people that are truly, truly wanting to seek God right now. Just obey Him. This altar is not just for sinners. It's not just for bad people, but it's for everybody. Those that are feeling the touch from God. Several have come. Would you want to come as well? Anyone else? You just feel God is calling you back to Him. Anybody else? Oh, Lord, I just pray that you would give courage to, to those people who maybe have been spoken to. And, but, God, the danger is that sometimes emotionally we're, you know, we're, we're impacted, but it doesn't get into a heart change. I pray, God, that you would just do a work today. Give courage to those that need to make changes in their lives. And, Lord, even good Christians that maybe have been just slightly straying away from what you've asked them to do. God, I pray that you'll give them the courage to respond to you right now. I pray this in your name. And I would just urge you again, if, if God has spoken to you, why don't you come right now? There are several that have broken the ice. And why don't you come right now? Friends, come right now and just seek God. Seek his presence. Seek his forgiveness. Seek his power. Anyone else before we gather in and around these that have come forward? Anyone else? You want to come and pray? And not that this is the only place that you can pray. You can pray wherever, but sometimes this is just a beautiful place because it breaks that pride issue. And 
and we humble ourselves and come to God. Anyone else? Anyone else is still coming here? God is still speaking to us. You know, we're not going to do anything weird. This is just a time to seek God. Don't miss this opportunity. Anyone else? People still are coming. What I want to do is I want to pray a prayer here. And and then I'd like for several of you, and I know it's lunchtime, but really there's nothing more important than eternal matters. And I'd like for several to just, as I'm praying, would you just gather in around these? And maybe you didn't have the courage to come on your own, but why don't you just come during this next wave? Just, I'd love to see just a whole bunch of you just gather in behind these or, or pray for yourself, whatever it is. Father, I want to thank you just for this amazing, amazing warning in your word. Lord, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you just for the way that you speak to us, even through books like Haggai that seemingly on a quick read, just they don't have anything practical for us. But Lord, thank you that they are so practical for us. And God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would just continue to speak to us. Lord, a lot of hands were raised that where you spoke to them. And God, they've gotten off track. And I just pray, oh Lord, that in your mercy... In your mercy, that you would help them to get back on track and that they would go up and into the mountains, bring down the timber and rebuild what's broken in their lives. So, Lord, we just praise you. We love you. And as we continue our prayer time, just let there be that sacred time where we feel your presence. We love you. We ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to dismiss you, but I would ask that you would not be talking. I'd love to have just a few more people that would even come and gather around here and, and, and just pray. And, and if you feel like you need to leave, if you could just do your visiting in the, uh, in, the, in the foyer, I would appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming, and let's just continue to seek God. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.